Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are. Welcome to the special book launch for the book Invisible China, How the Urban-Rural Divide Threatens China's Rise. I'm Katarla Taylor, events manager at IFPRI, and I will moderate today's event. Thank you for joining this virtual event live, and thank you to those of you who are watching this event recording. We are eager to hear from you. To participate in our Q&A session that will follow the brief presentations, please submit your questions on ifpri.org or through our various social media channels, including Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfPri on Twitter. We have an exciting program lined up for you, and I will now call on Johan Swinnen, IFPRI's Director General, to give introductory remarks. Thank you very much, Katarla. Uh, hello, everybody. It's, it's a great pleasure for me to be here today to introduce the speaker and, uh, and the book that he, our speaker, will present. Scott Rosell is a giant in our field. He is also a long time and a very strong supporter of IFPRI throughout uh, the past decades. Scott is a professor in Stanford University, and there he directs the Rural Education Action Program, which is focused very heavily on, on uh, research in China. So for the past 20 years, uh, Scott has also been the chair of the International Advisory Board of the Center for Chinese Agricultural Policy, which is now based in uh, Be uh, Beijing University. In recognition of his work, Scott has received many awards. Uh, some of the most prestigious of them are that he is a Yangtze scholar in Renmin University in China and, and uh, already since 2008. And he was awarded the Friendship Award by the Chinese government, by Premier Wen Jiabao, which is the highest honor that can be bestowed on a foreigner by the Chinese government. Scott Rosell has worked on many in, uh, issues in the past. In his early work, it was mostly related to agriculture and poverty reduction, and he wrote on trade, land reforms, productivity, name a topic related to that, and he has a paper on it. In the past 15 years, there's been a shift of his work towards more focus on nutrition, health, education, and maybe more under the umbrella of the role of human capital in economic development. And this is very strongly related to what he will present to us today in his book, okay? Now in his career, Scott has written numerous papers and book chapters, but he's written only one book. And this book is called From Marx and Mao to the Market. Actually, I co-authored the book with Scott. And over the years, we had an ongoing discussion about, I would argue, I covered much more part of the world and much more countries. And he would say, well, I covered much more people than you did in the book. Okay. And so I think now Scott wanted to settle the discussion saying, I'm going to write a book without you. And so that's what he is presenting here today. Uh, the book that Scott Rosell wrote with Natalie Helford from uh, Natalie Hell from Stanford University is called Invisible China, How the Urban-Rural Divide Threatens China's Rise. It talks about two Chinas. He says, or the introduction writes about, well, there is a familiar China that most people know. It's the world's largest consumer of luxury goods. It has been ordained as the next global superpower. Four decades of the fastest economic growth in human history have characterized the country's recent developments. China has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of dire poverty during this period, which is really unique, I think, in human history. It has now also become a large donor to anti-poverty efforts in Africa, and its One Belt, One Road program is calling for citizens in China and around the world to expand their ambition and to integrate with Chinese institutional development. But he emphasizes in the book, there's also another China. In it still live 500 million people in poverty. Most of these people are undereducated, undernourished, and they suffer from health problems. A central theme to the book is not enough attention is paid to this other China, not only inside China, but also outside China. And not paying attention to this may have significant consequences both for China itself and for the world. Why that is, that is the topic of the presentation of today and of the book for us to read. Uh, after Scott's presentation of the book, we have two discussions and we're very pleased to have uh, these people here with us today. Wang Wang is a social science scholar in the Rural Education Action Program at Stanford University. And Xiaobo Zhang is a senior research fellow at IFPRI. Xiaobo has published very widely himself on Chinese development. He is considered worldwide as one of the experts on this thing, and we're very pleased to have him at IFPRI. 
always and with us today. Scott, with this, I'm going to give you the floor. Over to you. Thank you, uh, Yo. Um, get this up here. Uh, thank you, thank you, Yo and um, uh, Katala and Xiaobo uh, uh, and Wang Huan uh, in in advance, um, and I appreciate this. Um, I do have a long hif uh, history with IFPRI. In 1987, I spent the entire summer uh, at IFPRI um, as a uh, uh, intern. And then IFPRI funded my PhD dissertation work, and uh, so uh, and have worked uh, with with many of your different uh, uh, IFPRI fellows since then. So um, thank you very much for doing this. Um, um, this was my first book. Yo already told you. Uh, uh, now let me tell you what he says. Is he Yo will always say I wrote one. <laughs> I Scott wrote one twenty sixth of the book because we wrote it on twenty six countries an agriculture transition and I wrote about China. And like he said, I said, I wrote on more than half the book because uh, it was based on population. This is only my second book. And in fact, I, I wrote half, less than half of this one. Uh, Natalie uh, and I wrote this together. The prose in this book is spectacular. That's Natalie's biggest contribution. She's a fantastic writer. Uh, thank you for being a great co-author, Natalie, colleague and friend. Um, so uh, uh, there we are. Um, and I, I don't think I need to say this at IFPRI, but I do start every seminar out like this. There, there are some things that I think are big challenges to China. This isn't a China bashing book. Um, I think we need to address this rural human capital problem in China for humanistic reasons, we, we care about those people who have been alleviated from poverty that, that Yo talked about. We don't want them falling back into poverty. Uh, economic, I mean, the, if China thrives, a billion people thrive, the world will thrive, the US will thrive. I think that, that, that there's economic reasons for this. And of course, I always say, I'm an economist. I don't talk about the overall good, the politics, um, the social problems, the, 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 the peace uh, and safety of the world. So um, uh, I want China to succeed. Of course, I want it to succeed in a fair, cooperative, all-encompassing way. That's why I wrote this book. So what's the invisible China? The invisible China is very, very easy to find. It's rural China, right? It's 840 million rural Chinese. That's one-tenth of the world's population. It's twice the U.S. population. They're the workers, the self-employed, informal workers. We'll talk a lot about these down the road. They run the farms. They're the elderly left in the villages. They're the children left in the villages. And they're the families in the migrant communities. This, these are the 840 million people. When I first started working in China, 85% of Chinese lived in rural communities and a higher percentage had families and grandparents and parents and brothers and sisters that were farming and working in factories. Everyone in those days would, would work in the city and go home and, you know, between the city lives and their immediate families and home villages. Um, this wasn't an invisible China. When, when you went across the country, you're on a bus through these, these horrible roads in China at that time. And you would stop for in village hotels and eat in, in farmhouse restaurants. People knew rural China at that time. It wasn't invisible 30 to 40 years ago, but, but here's China today, right? Uh, if you don't fly across the country, you get on a 350 kilometer per hour high-speed rail. Um, I love to take photos. You can't take a photo of a village or a farm field going at 350 kilometers per hour. It just blurs and people just, it's, it's invisible. And the media, not just the international media, but the China media, I mean, right? It, it focuses on Shanghai, Beijing, Shenzhen, right? And um, we, we, we get almost no glimpse of how two thirds of China works and, and, and grows up. Um, and uh, so that's why we did this. Uh, uh, Scott, me, <laughs> um, you know, on what basis is this book, uh, book produced? Um, 
Uh, I've actually done field work in 28 provinces and municipalities. I haven't done in Tianjin or Shanxi province. In every other province we've done field work in and, and collected data, um, 650 counties. Um, I think that we're almost to a million surveys uh, over time in the field. Uh, Dr. Wong will talk a little more about some of our, um, our, our work um, in, in her comments. I, she shared her slides with me so I, could, uh, I know what's coming up. So um, how does invisible China threaten China's rise? Um, this is a, a quick graph, and I think it's a really important graph um, that shows um, a, a couple very important things. Here on the horizontal axis is incomes in 1960, and here's incomes today. And you can see here are in the bottom left-hand corner, the low income trap, right? The, the Myanmar's, the, the, the Congo's, right? And here are the OECD rich countries, right? The US, Belgium, uh, Canada, uh, the, the UK, France. Um, I'm interested in trying to understand differences between the graduates. These are countries that, 20, that 50 years ago were poor and now they're, or middle income, we're middle income before, and now they're rich countries, they're, they're high income countries. The thing to notice is there's only 15 of them, right? And in the past 20 years, there's been no new graduates, no new graduates in the past. Most of the country world, in the world are here, the trapped. 70 years ago, they were middle income, today they're middle income, okay? And the, the, the question that I wanna look at is, what are the differences between those countries that are trapped and those that are graduates, right? What, what's the difference in here and here? And one real difference is their level of human capital at the time that they're middle income of their entire labor force. Is, is this labor force ready to graduate from middle income to high income? Um, and let's just say, here are those OECD countries, right? In the upper right-hand corner, right? The, the, the rich countries club of the world. And out of uh, 100 people in their economy, out of, in their labor force, 75 uh, or so, three quarters have a high school education or greater, okay? So that they have the skills to learn how to learn to switch jobs, okay? Look at those middle income grads. Those are the, 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 those 15 countries that had graduated. That at the time when they were middle income, they already had high income levels of, of, uh, of human capital in their labor force. Okay, it's, now, but then look at the trapped, okay? The, the ones that have spent the last, last 70 years in middle income, they have half the level out of, out of 10 people in their labor force, only three to four have ever been to high school. The, the rest of them are, are you know, high school dropouts. They, they don't have those skills to participate productively in this high income economy. And so, so look at the difference. And it's important because as you move from middle income to high income, wages rise, jobs change, and if you don't have the skills to learn those new jobs, there's a polarization. You get this rise of unemployment, informality, the informalness of, of these middle income countries are, are, are characteristic that, that, that are very, very important. There's high crime, social unrest, and of course, this is gonna dampen investment, absence of qualified workers, and there's this uh, uh, stagnation and more polarization. And so, um, um, this is why I think this human capital is extremely important. So what happens when a large share of your labor force sinks into the informal economy? Um, look at this here, you know, Argentina, Brazil, you know, Ecuador, Indonesia, Mexico, you know, these countries, half, half of their labor are low wage, low skill, no benefits, no set working hours. They they live on the periphery, right? And 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 you know this is what you get in in those countries. And they they then have to go live in the slums, and and they have very poor social services. Santiago Levy is now at the Inter American Development Bank. Just I, he has a great paper and a great talk where he, he talks about the Mexican paradox. Mexico macroeconomic wise does everything right. They have export success, they've accumulated physical capital, they have the policy environment good, 
but they haven't grown in 30 years, based almost, not, not grown at all. And he blames this large informal sector that it undermines the formal sector, persistence of informality, it gives prize the social problems, crime, stagnates productivity and draws down the formal sector. Uh, look at Mexico, right? Uh, only three out of four, uh, three out of 10, um, uh, 34 out of 100 of their laborers have ever been to high school. Um, and it's sort of that's behind the rise of the informal sector, uh, it, you know, in Mexico. So let's turn to China now. Because when I give this talk, <laughs> I hear everyone say, uh, there's, you know, that, that hasn't China already made it? Aren't they already the superstar of the world, right? They're, they're you know, Yo, Yo introduced them in those terms, right? Uh, uh, what they are. Um, I don't think everybody remember when I was in grad school, in fact, when I was at IFPRI, <laughs> um, uh, people were studying Mexico intensely about this success story. They called Taiwan the next, I mean, say they called Mexico the next Taiwan, okay? And look at what happened, you know, Mexico had made it. They were, they were allowed into OECD because they were a high income country. They're now the poorest OECD country and they haven't grown for, for decades. So where is China in human capital in this world of nations? There it is. <laughs> they, you know, they were poor uh, 30 uh, year, 50 years ago. You know, they have risen a lot. They're above the 45 degree line. Um, but what's their human capital? Okay, are they gonna be able to make it on this metric? That's at this stage of development where children get the skills they're gonna need for the future. This is where people, when I give the talk in China, you hear a gasp. I don't care if it's a Tsinghua or a, or a, a government uh, uh, policymakers uh, seminar, or if it's in the Chamber of Commerce. I tell people China actually has the lowest level of human capital in the whole middle income world. And people go, and, and then they think I'm China bashing. Right? They're China bashing. And where'd you get your data? I can, all, I can see it in their minds. Where's that data come from? And I say, well, it comes from this little 1.3 billion person survey called the, the China census, <laughs> okay? Here's the census data where they ask people what their level of education is. And if you look at the share of everyone between 18 and 65, you see indeed only 30%, three out of 10, have ever been to high school, okay? And as you see, it's China has lower human capital than South Africa, <laughs> lower than Argentina, Mex lower than Turkey, okay? They are the lowest in this middle income uh, world, okay? And um, that I think that, you know, can you succeed when 70%, remember 840 million times 0.7, uh, you know, you have 500 million high school dropouts in your country, right? This, what do you do with them as you move into high income? Uh, is there any evidence that this is happening, having an effect on China's economy? Um, this is the brand new work that, 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 that we've been doing. And here is the share of the all employment in the formal sector. Of course, the flip side is the informal sector. So you can see that in 2004, two thirds, 66% of China was in the formal sector, only a third were in the informal sector. Look at today, 2017, um, uh, less than 40% now, <laughs> okay? I mean, less than 45% now are in the formal sector. Two thirds of China's economy now is in this informal sector. Those are, you know, those sectors that you saw in Mexico and, and, and Brazil, and, and, and it's the fastest growing informal labor intensive services. You know, there's no benefits, low wages, no set hours, um, uh, and, and they're growing at a, you know, at the fastest rate. Every other sector of the Chinese economy is falling. Manufacturing jobs are falling, construction jobs are falling, farm jobs are falling. Um, and, and so, you know, they're, wow, they're headed in that same direction. Uh, it's kind of hard to see here. I've, I've summarized here. Here are the average growth rates of, of, these are professional wages. So professional wages are now growing at a faster rate than they were um, uh, uh, seven years ago, while these informal sector jobs, right, 
these in labor intensive service jobs, their growth rates are falling now. And why is it? Well, you get new entrants, you get people from manufacturing who are laid off, people from construction that are laid off. They're all getting dumped into this low wage informal uh, service sector. And even though demand may be rising for these services, supply of labor is falling, the wages are falling. And so we're getting this polarization like we've seen in these other uh, middle income churches. So what's driving these trends, <laughs> okay? <laughs> what's driving these trends? <laughs> robots and automation, right? As wages started to go up, they automated. And globalization, yeah, look at Levi's are made in Ethiopia and Chinese firms have moved to Bangladesh. Samsung produces everything in Vietnam now, right? And so you got globalization and then you have the COVID-19 and the global recession. This is a, a, a more thing. Should we see more in the future? You know, China has a made in 2025. They've actually, they've actually sort of trying to take attention away from that. But look at the number of robots and the amount of automation that's happening. China is outpacing the whole world in this. And we're getting these global supply chain shifts as we're, you know, as, as jobs and factories leave China. So should we expect more in the future? Probably, right? And so this isn't going to turn around, right? Um, so I, I'm almost done with my time. Does any, I, I, I like to often say is, come on, you know, somebody has to know about this in China, right? Um, is it a secret? In fact, I think, I don't think it's a secret. The, the current China's government, you know, is, is really, uh, you know, uh, is concerned about this. They, they understand this is gonna be a problem and they're actually doing something about it. Um, this is a graph that shows 15 to 17 year olds. So, so this isn't the whole labor force. This is just 15 to 17 year olds. And you can see that uh, uh, a decade ago, 2005, only half of kids went to high school. Um, look at today, it's almost 90% of kids go to high school. China has added 10 million new slots in high school in the past, in, in, over this decade of 2005 to 2014, right? It's huge. They say by this year, it's probably going to be extended for a year or two because of COVID-19. They won't have everyone in high school, okay? So can they get everybody in high school? Well, if they get everybody in high school, it's going to be a rural problem to get universalized unit that you need, look at only the, the, the high school education rates in urban areas are higher than Germany, okay? But still only 70% of rural kids are in, in high school. Um, and this was 10 years ago. And uh, today only half of kids in poor rural areas are in high school. So that's where we have to target, right? We don't need to worry <laughs> about the here, but we need to figure out how do we get those kids into high school. I often think this is China today. Here's South Korea and Taiwan in the 1980s. Everyone was going to high school. <laughs> this is when they were still middle income. Look at Mexico in the 1980s. The next Taiwan. Oops, nobody looked at the difference here, right? Uh, China today, Mexico in the 1980s. I mean, it's, it's just it's very striking similarities, right? So the challenge of the government today is, you know, how do we get the rest of kids in the high school? Okay. Um, and uh, I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> uh, I think China can do it. They're going to make people go. <laughs> okay. What I worry about is, are they going to be ready to learn when they enter high school? Because of course, you know, you, if they're not learning, why go to high school, right? Um, and in fact, this number two is precisely the problem. Because quite simply, according to our research, <laughs> there's a lot more details than I'm going to give you today. There's a large share of rural people, rural children, rural adults that don't have the skills to learn how to learn. Um, they're not going to be able to take advantage of these new economic opportunities. Even if we get them in the high school, I'm worried. It's because children and youth and young adults and working age rural individuals, um, you know, uh, uh, when they don't have those skills to learn how to learn, they're going to be 
dumped into this informal, low-wage, low-skilled, no-benefits um, thing. This is about my last slide here. Uh, there's a lot to it, <laughs> and I'm not going to go into details, but the book has discussion of many of the sources of these learning, rural learning problems. It's going to say, you know, uh, uh, even getting these people in the high school, you know, uh, there's problems in junior high. Right. There's problems in elementary school. We've done so much work on nutrition and health and vision problems is is half the kids, you know, have have a health or vision or nutrition problem that's hurting their learning when they're in elementary school. Um, th these are in school. There's early childhood development programs. Half of our work now is on babies. Um, there's also poor quality of rural schools. There's great hardware, beautiful schools today. There's no software. Uh, there's unsatisfied rural teachers. There's a decentralized fiscal system that, that aren't funding these schools, right? So there's a lot, a lot of problems out there. Uh, Wang Juan will talk a little about how we, how we, we address those, but um, um, yeah, I, you know, I worry about it. I, I wish China would say, I'm going to wake up to these invisible problems and we're going to put the, in the attention that we put to other problems, we're going to put our attention on this. You know, we're going to put our focus of fiscal investment, of time investment, of, of policy uh, focus. Um, you, you know, China has shown that, you know, they can overcome problems that other countries haven't been able to, but until they wake up to the magnitude of, and the, the importance of this problem, I think that um, uh, we need to, to, to be concerned about it. I'm done. Uh, <laughs> I would love comments uh, and uh, uh, thank you for, for listening. Great, thank you, Scott, for that fascinating presentation. We will now turn to our discussants. And up first is Juan Wang, who is a social science research scholar in the Rural Education Action Program at Stanford University. Juan, over to you. Thank you. Now from Scott's talk, we learned that um, rural students are not ready for a future uh, economy for China. So how do we know that? I'm going to share a little bit about the um, research behind the uh, invisible book. So how do you measure something that is invisible? Um, when you study China, data is the key. A lot of organizations study China, but the source of data for evidence-based research are scarce. There are national data, but then the question is the reliability. And there's also data collected by large banks and consultants, but often this kind of data is not available to the public. In between, there's basically nothing. Often, if we want to research on China, then we have to collect data ourselves. So this is the uh, comparative advantage of REAP. Rural Education Action Program, we are a research and a policy advocacy organization based at Stanford University, and we work with multiple partner universities in China. So we seek to help China to prepare its labor force for the future economy um, by improving education outcomes for students. We first identify the causes for poverty in rural China, and then we evaluate the simple and effective solutions to help the rural children. So we maintain probably the largest data collection in rural China in the world. How do we do it? So this is um, a map showing RIP's project sites. In the past, uh, we conducted large scaled field research with universities in China. Each of the dot here on the map represents probably three to 500 schools in our sample. And our research areas covers from rural teaching quality to technology and education, nutrition, health, and migrant schools, and also early childhood in education. So um, recently, we also focused on the rural economic recovery fo following the COVID-19. So all these data and analysis from the projects are the basis of every conclusion in Scott's book. I'm gonna take you a tour to um, the back stage of how we do our research. So let's take this vision care and education project as example. Um, the background of this research is China has the largest population of myopic um, people. 
And about 10 years ago, this was one of my first field trip with Scott. Um, we went to the field and we saw that a lot of the rural kids are looking at the blackboard, squeaking their eyes. They're probably myopic, but they don't have glasses on their face. So how does this uncorrected myopia, myopia problem um, affect their learning? So we went out and randomly selected about 20 counties in rural China. So this is two provinces and the population in these two provinces is probably 16 million people. And we randomly selected our sample in this area and got about 200 rural schools. And then we trained the graduate students in our partner universities as our enumerator to go out and conduct the large scale survey. And these enumerators went out and go to each of the rural schools in the, in the countryside. And the baseline survey, we collect student academic performance data. So here's our survey doing uh, in classroom. And then we um, randomly uh, um, we then, um, did the vision screening for every student in our sample schools. And then we randomly assigned schools into treatment and control groups. And for the treatment school, students received a pair of glasses for free. And for the control group schools, students are um, the same. And it, after a year, we conduct the end line survey and collect the student academic performance data again. And so what we found is by simply putting a pair of eyeglasses on students' face, one academic year, the gap between rural and urban students was cut in half. So this is a huge impact, um, but you know, caused by a very simple um, solution. So um, what we did is we shared these research fundings with the government and we showed them that about 30 to 50%, uh, 85% of the rural students are nearsighted, but only one in six of them have glasses. So without glasses, they can only learn half as well as their peers that can see clearly. So this is one of the invisible barriers that are holding back China's rural children. So after years of steady advocacy, we're trying to push the policy on addressing these myopia problems in rural China. Finally, um, China declared, declared that myopia is a national emergency in 2018. And right now, China is offering vision screening and vision care to every kid in rural schools. So this is an example of how we do our research is policy um, change caused by evidence uh, research. In Scott's book, um, he summarized all the research we have done in the past 20 years. And in fact, in the past 10 years, about half of the impact evaluation research on education in China is conducted by REAP's team. So if you wanna learn more about um, rural invisible problems, I highly recommend everyone to um, read Scott's book and learn more from there. Thank you. Great, thank you very much, Juan. Our final discussant is Jaibo Zhang, who is a senior research fellow at IFBRI. Jaibo, over to you. Thank you, Katala. Good morning, everyone. It's a great honor to discuss Scott's book. I'm a big fan of Scott's work. Uh, he's a giant in the field of uh, rural China. He has devoted almost 40 years to study rural China. I've learned a lot over years. So today I will uh, talk two points. The first, I will use a story to illustrate how I have learned tremendously from Scott. Secondly, I will uh, show the recent study on pandemic uh, to highlight the relevance and importance of uh, Scott's research findings. Next, please. Let me start with the story. My first field trip with Scott is on 2003 uh, on a research project on local governance in China. That was, we went to the mountainous area uh, in Zhejiang province. Every day we woke up early, Scott made French coffee. And then we started a long day of interviews with farmers, officials. I was so impressed with Scott's uh, Mandarin ability. He could easily chat, uh, spoke jokes with farmers and officials. By the evening, after drink of have some Chinese drink, we 
discuss uh, exchange research idea on midnight. So he was full of energy. And during the, on the road side, he saw the uh, tea plantation, he jumped off and started practice uh, how to uh, practice uh, picking up tea leaves. Uh, so you can see his energy. So I learned a lot uh, from the field trip. I observed how he conducted research, how he combined qualitative and quantitative research method. Next, please. Learned from Scott's work, also inspired by his uh, research, our uh, EPRI team launched Village and Hustle Survey in 2004. Uh, unlike his uh, massive scale of research, uh, we only surveyed about 200 villages in Guizhou and uh, Gansu provinces. And for Hustle Survey, we zoomed in 18 natural villages in Guizhou. So we can uh, follow this household for eight years. So for the, from the left figure, you can see the photo with the Shengen Fan, our former director general, and Xi Jinping, our senior risk fellow at Ypres. So we talked to uh, farmers and officials, trying to understand the rural lives. On the right two figures, you can see the migrant workers. You, if you go to village, villages, you see most young people have migrated out. Uh, they work on the construction site, they work on the ma uh, manufacturing floor. During the summer, you can see from the bottom figure, the children just stay with their moms to work on the family workshops. These are hundreds of millions of rural migrants who, left, uh, who were built up the Chinese cities and made China the work factory. Next, please. As migrant workers left villages, children and elderly, elderly are left behind. So you can see the nutritional status of the children. This will probably highlight a scout's book. Next, please. This is another photo, another click. Yes. Uh, my Ypres colleague, Alan Dubrow and Scott wrote a very influential article uh, published in uh, China Economy Review in 2008. In their study, they showed that when the migrant sent remittance back, the family spent most of the money on housing construction and also other social uh, spendings like social festivals. For example, in our uh, survey village, we found in order for some to get married, a family must build a brand new three-story house and hold a three-day wedding banquet. If you go to the second floor, third floor, they're largely empty, no furniture, no paint at all because farmers have no money left for other type of consumptions. Next, please. Because they left, have little money left, the consumption on the invisible type, invisible uh, consumption are squeezed. For example, they have little money left for food, uh, for their children's education. So here is, uh, table from our own study. You, if you look at the face score for height, children's height, uh, the standing ratio and the wasting ratio between 2004 and 2008, you will find starting trend, no improvement at all, despite more than 10% uh, annual growth rate uh, of income in this uh, survey village. So this is a very famous Deaton food puzzle. Deaton got his Nobel Prize. Uh, he found in India, the same pattern, despite rapid economic growth, a nutritional status for children barely improved. We found the exactly same pattern in rural China. Next, please. So this figure show why. Because as people spend more money on the visible status consumption, like housing, wedding banquet, gift, their spending on food, the invisible consumption is squeezed out. The horizontal line is a relative status uh, for villagers. The higher the value, the lower economic status. So you can see the two lines. The top line is the spending on the share of uh, on food. The bottom line, the share of cash expenditure on gift. You can see for the right uh, part, the poor, the, for the poor population, they spend a larger share of their cash on gift as they attend weddings, 
funerals, they must pay the same amount as the rich counterparts. Consequently, they spend much less money on food. So the nutritional status of their children suffered as a result. Next, please. So let me move on to my second point. The recent COVID-19 pandemic exposed the existing problem of rural-urban divide. Wang Huang and Scott uh, did, wrote a very, very nice paper based on their large village survey covering more than 700 villages. They found 26% of rural households reported to have at least one family member lost jobs due to the pandemic. And one out of six self-employed businesses were closed. One out of six means about 17% of small businesses were shut down because of a pandemic. Independently, our team uh, did four interviews in February and May with our previous uh, uh, sample uh, SMEs in China. So what we found is about 17 to 18% of SMEs uh, closed as a result of the pandemic. The number resembles the, uh, that of Scott's uh, team's funding. Their team is 166 also, if we know SMEs account for 80% of total employment, that means a loss of 13 to 14% of total employment in China. Most of SME jobs are from rural areas and the rural population account for 6% of China's population. That's translated into about 25, 26% of uh, unemployment in rural China. That number also match Scott's team's findings. Next, please. As poor, lots of their jobs, they don't have money to spend on uh, uh, durable goods, uh, uh, clothes, etc. Also, they're afraid of spending. You can see in our main survey, as me, the most majorly challenge is lack of demand. So they don't have enough orders. Next, please. So in summary, Scott's book show the damaging effect of rural divide on China's long-term sustainable growth. The risk of COVID-19 just exacerbates the problems. So right now, China is uh, calling for stimulating domestic consumption to generate economic growth. But how to do it? The best way is to increase, to provide a better risk umbrella, such as uh, providing health insurance, employment insurance, and target income support for the elderly to the rural residents. Right now, 98% of rural residents don't have unemployment insurance. So that's a big uh, challenge. Because I'm running out of time, let me stop here. It's a great pleasure to discuss Scott's book. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, Shaiwo. And thank you to you, Juan, for your comments. Scott, let me come back to you for a couple minutes if there's anything that Shaiwo uh, and Juan shared that you would like to respond to. Yes, uh, uh, thank you both of you, uh, um, uh, uh, Dr. Wong and Dr. Zhang. Um, and uh, uh, I, 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 I remember everything, um, Xiaobo, except for going out to the tea fields. I don't remember being a tea leaf picker, but uh, those are, uh, that's, uh, uh, yeah, by the way, uh, Xiaobo is the most uh, productive and probably one of the top published uh, economists in the world now working on on China. And that's kind of what I wanted to, to talk about is, um, is as I'm listening to this, um, we've actually been stepping back and say, who is working in this critical time in, in China's development <laughs> at a time when there's so much friction with the U.S., with with other countries in the world, um, and and you know you hear constantly, uh, you know the the problems with the China economy, the intervention of the the state, the the problems of Chinese firms, um, the the feeling of of individuals. Um, this is a time when almost all of this discussion is happening without an empirical base basis. Um, there are not many Xiaobo Zhangs in the world. Um, if Pri's team in China, led by Kevin Chun, is actually doing some, some very, very interesting work, but it's a handful of people. Um, and and I, I would really like to make this a call 
for anybody who is, you know, is listening and anybody interested in this is we have to do more. At the height of the Cold War, <laughs> okay, this is, this is a statement about the U.S. now. At the height of the Cold War in the 1980s, the top 50 universities in the U.S., there were 65 economists who worked full-time on the Soviet economy, all right, 65. Today, in those top 50 universities, um, there are two people working on China economy full-time, two. Those 65, those 65 um, uh, positions in the, in the top 50 universities in the U.S. were all funded by the federal government. Now, none of it is funded by the federal government. It's, it's, it's work by Xiaobo and Kevin Chun and uh, Shengen Fan and Yo Swinen have raised to do work in China and are, and so I think this is an area if, it, you know, I think it's the most important problem, not just rural China, China's e e economic problems and um, US-China, China-world uh, economic relations is, is something that has to get more priority. And I, I'm hoping IFPRI and, and our other partners who are listening uh, take that to heart. Um, uh, and so I, that's, that's just a call. Um, I, I don't have much more else to say, um, uh, Katarla. Um, I um, do want to say when people do research in China, the, the one thing that happens is um, if you work with your Chinese partners and promote your results, you, you do, you know, get results. Um, you know, uh, Wang Huan told us, you know, one in six children 10 to 15 years ago were, who were myopic of the six, only one was wearing glasses. Um, today, the government has taken it heart. Now it's three of seven, almost half of kids. I mean, we still have 10 million kids are sitting in classrooms that can't see the blackboard. <laughs> I wonder why they're not learning, right? But, but it's gone a long ways. Xiaobo's work on consumption, on gift giving, on small and medium enterprises has changed the debate that's going there. So um, uh, I, I think that, um, you know, it's not only important to do the research, not important to inform our side, <laughs> um, you know, uh, uh, what, what, what's happening, but it's important um, that, we, that when you do this work, you can actually change people's lives. So I'm, I'm going to stop right there. Thank you, both of you, for, for those uh, sets of comments. Great. Thank you so much, Scott. And let's move straight into the Q&A portion of our program, where we will just pose a few questions from our audience for you, our uh, speakers, to respond to. Scott, let me direct the first question to you. It's, what do you think are the best policies for the government to address the problems that you've described? Um, we don't need to bring Shabwa's last slide up, but Shabwa's last slide had a lot of it. Um, uh, you know, it, uh, um, it's, you know it, it's a problem of underinvestment in social security and unemployment in education and in health. Um, if you're from the United States, you're very familiar with the problem that China has. Um, we have 45,000 school districts in the US, right? And so if you're in a school district in parts of Maryland, or if you're in school districts in Palo Alto, California, property taxes are high, uh, schools are really well funded. <laughs> Palo Alto High School doesn't hire anybody without a PhD, <laughs> you know, to, to be a high school teacher, right? And uh, it's spectacular programs. Uh, then you go across the bay to West Oakland, to West Oakland, school district or the south side chicago school district or or wherever and property you know they're severely underfunded that's exactly the same thing that's happened in china is china has a very decentralized fiscal system and um and, and it's not only true for education and, and health but the, the 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 example i like to give of the problem is with education um uh and if uh why, why does the local government not spend more on education? Number one, their property taxes are low. Their, their value-added taxes are low. They don't have the tax money to do so. Number two, there's no incentive for them to invest in rural education. We just recently, 
it's about three years ago, sorry, <laughs> completed a survey where we went and looked at what happens to rural children who get educated to the high school level? What do they do in their life? 10 years after they graduate, only seven out of 100 come back to the own county. So the own county has to fund rural research, uh, rural education, but every, all the rural kids leave and never come back. Um, it has to be centralized and unemployment insurance has to be centralized and health insurance has to be expanded. So I, I think that's, that's really, really key is uh, we have to centralize um, uh, uh, education, health and unemployment insurance policies to get them into. Great, thank you, Scott. Yo, let me pass it to you. I believe you have a couple questions for our panel. Uh, yes, thank you very much, Carla. To the, I actually, I had a couple of points here, and I'm, I'll just uh, put them, and then the, the panel itself can decide whether you want to come in on this. Uh, my la my second point, actually, I'll move that up, is very much related to what Scott just said. I was just wondering because. Sanchez Scott, you say that a lot of the problem, the incentives for the local governments to invest in the schools are related with the migration problem, really, that people move out and then don't come back. So I guess you say the, the solution to that is centralization. So basically that the, the places where people go to work, get the tax revenues from their from the employment issues to invest in the things. Is there also an option or an, for basically bringing the work closer to the villages, okay, to change the, the incentives in that way? and basically stimulate uh, local employment, which that would means uh, providing income, tax revenue, et cetera. The second point I had was on, uh, I guess when people do not send their children to school, it may be because I'm, I'm wondering on the demand and the supply issues there, right? And so a lot of the things to invest in schooling is really working on the supply side, whether there is, where the schools are there, the quality of the schools are there. But part of it may also be whether there are there is demand for skills, okay? And in a way, I think that links a bit up with what Chabo said that people are investing in um, in housing or in, in basically in banquets rather than sending their kids to school, etc. So, what's the incentive? Is it a cultural issue, or is it something else that you can change? I mean, my last point. This is just because we're we're talking at IFPRI now. You refer to nutrition problems, but you didn't go in any detail on that. So maybe you or one or so can can say a little bit more about that. Those were my three points. Thank you. Let me address those first two you did, and maybe Wang Hong can take a a shot at the nutrition problem in schools um, if if she wants to. Um, but. Um, uh, what is the whole world do? It's actually, so I think number one, under the current situation, we should centralize funding of rural schools. That's what I just said. The bigger problem is China's migration policy in general, right? Is they don't let families move to the city and use services in the city, right? there, uh, And, um, you know, that's how at least until now in the world, every single country, there's no country in the world that's high income and more than 20% of its population lives in a rural area or more than 5% of the population farms. <laughs> okay, or maybe it's 7%, I think in Japan uh, and, and France, right? Um, so, um, but China's trying to do it differently. They're trying to say, you rural people, you can't move to the urban areas and take advantage of urban, high quality urban schools and high quality of urban healthcare. We want you to do it at home. So that's a really basic problem. It's, it's it, for people who know China, it's a hukou problem. It's the residence problem, right? Um, uh, I often say that, you know, everybody in China has tattooed here, rural or urban, it's, it's not true. They have an identity card that says they're rural or urban, and that determines where they get their social security. Um, um, there's a lot of academics who say, get rid of that. Let's move. There's not enough people in the city. So it's going to be a hard sell. But China now is trying to do what you said, Yo, is let's create demand. Let's create employment opportunities in rural areas. This would have been crazy 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Of course, in the new ICT world, you know, 
you know, uh, with 5G, 6G, 7G. <laughs> okay. Um, but I think what we've seen in the U.S. is who has benefited from these working at home, high tech, um, uh, professional world is you really need a high level of education. You need, you need good working skills. You need good math skills. You need good computer skills to be able to take advantage of those opportunities. Um, if we think we're going to create small little economies and have service demand for services rise, it's Chowboy's problem. They're poor. They're, they have all kinds of, you know, demand problems for health, uh, education, getting their kids married. They aren't going to even demand those services. So I, I don't think we can create little uh, 2,000 counties, 2,000 little economies, whether internet penetrates there and now we can all work from home. Um, the, the, the highly educated, you're going to need even higher levels of education. So I think that's I think that's the problem <laughs> that we're at. I think it's going to be really, really, really hard to do that. Um, so, uh, and the second thing you ask is about supply and demand. This is easy for me um, is um, we, I told you half of us, our work is on babies. So we have moms, we have moms who have their six month old, one year old babies in their arms. And we ask them, what do you want for education for your kid? 95% of moms, dads, grandmas say, I want my kid to go to college. 95%. By the time they're in junior high, they say, I can't go to school anymore. And it's because at zero to three, they aren't parenting. They aren't investing in their kids. There's a, a there's a a, a a zero to three parental investment crisis. That they, they want their kid to go to college. They're raising them like they're farmers, and so they're keeping them health and safe. But they aren't stimulating them. They don't read to them. They don't sing to them. They don't tell stories to them. They don't have to talk to them. And the kid can't talk. Of course, because you don't talk to your kid, the kid doesn't talk until they're three. So I think that's a, a, another. Problem. I'll, I'll stop there. So uh, I, I would, if I did one investment today, I would invest in a national zero to three um, parental uh, uh, training program today. So, yeah, thank you, uh, Scott. Juan, did you want to come in on the on Yo's third question? Yeah. So for the nutrition issues among rural students, um, in Scott's book, there is a whole chapter about the invisible barriers. So from our research, we found that a quarter of the stu rural students uh, are, are having anemic issues. So their um, anemia, which affects their learning, and about one third of them have worms in their um, body. So all these issues are uh, affecting students' learning ability. And we also run several randomized control trials to find the solution to solve this um, anemia and warm problems. The solution is actually very simple for um, anemia problems, simply by um, providing a pill of vitamin pills. So providing uh, the micronutrient students need Will will you know reduce the myopia, my, uh, anemic sorry anemic rate by um, 25 percent, and for worms you just give students deworming um, medicines, which is totally safe. So we've been um, pushing the policy on this um, to to provide you know to provide the solution for these um, problems. Great, thank you. And I'm mindful of time, and so let me turn to you, Jaibo, if you want to offer any thoughts on what uh, you asked earlier okay one is on the whether social norms affect uh, family decision to invest their children's health and education uh, that's for sure uh, in particular when there's a demographic uh, change as i said earlier there's a sex racial imbalance there are more men uh, than women in rural areas so the competition in the marriage market is so intense so families spend too much resources on their sons, like a house uh, to build a new house, on a lavish banquet, so the expenses of other invisible consumption. So we, when we think about policies, we also need to think about the policies to change 
uh, the, like the family planning policy, which has caused the skewed sex ratios. Uh, the one policy is to maybe abolish the family uh, planning policy. It has uh, uh, lost some restrictions, but still there. So my advice is to abolish the family uh, planning policy. Scott has argued this too, to change this to uh, the, uh, the planning, uh, family planning commission to more like for public health, to provide more services to women and the children. So that may be a, uh, immediate uh, policy advice. Great, thank you, Jai. Well, we are out of time. And so let me now call on you to offer any closing remarks before we conclude the session. Thanks, Katala. I don't have much to add here. I mean, we have, uh, it's good that we used up all the time to hear from Scott and from Chabo and Wang. Uh, maybe my only point is that it's uh, kind of interesting because Wang gave us this interesting example of the of the, the glasses, right? How kids in, in China cannot see the blackboard. And so maybe this book is the is the glasses that we need to see the invisible China. Okay, and this will be, and maybe this book will become the glasses that we need and many other people in the world will need to see something which we did not see before. So with that, thanks uh, Scott for coming here, for presenting, I thought it was very, very interesting. Uh, thanks Wang and thanks Xiaobo for great comments and back to you. Great, thank you so much, Joe. And I will echo what Joe said in thanking all of our program participants. And let me invite the audience to join us next Thursday on October 15th at eight o'clock a.m. EDT for IFPRI's official side event of the World Food Prize for Log Dialogue on COVID-19 and developing country responses. Until next time, stay safe, everyone. <laughs>